0: Welcome to Season 2. If you remember, in Episode 14, the last of Season 1 aired on Wednesday, September 28th. That following Friday, on the 30th, we loaded up the car and headed north up the peninsula, beginning a road trip that would last almost a month. Now, what would compel someone to get in a 20-year-old Honda CRV and drive 6,500 miles from the tip of Baja to the city of brotherly love and back? Family. That clan of madness you happen to be born into. It's a lottery whose winner was decided by the cosmos, and your job is to spend the rest of your life figuring out how your piece fits into the puzzle. In this episode, family practice has nothing to do with medicine, rather the practice of familying, and the process is messy. It's only fitting that the journey to begin season two starts with a road trip. 3,176 miles from our door in Baja to Little Rock, Arkansas, Annapolis, Maryland, and then to Philadelphia. On this particular trip, we stopped first to remember and celebrate my wife's sister, who unexpectedly passed away in May. We rented a small cabin on Arkansas's Red River and gathered to scatter Michelle's ashes where her mom and dad's ashes were scattered a few years back. Afterwards, we drove to Annapolis, Maryland for the sailboat show where every year Mel sells her jewelry and we get a chance to reconnect with our sailing life. Then it was up to Philly for a surprise birthday party celebrating my mother's 90th birthday, 32,851 days. That's how long she's had to figure out how her piece fits. During that time, she raised five relatively well-adjusted kids. As the youngest, I'm gazing up the ladder. And I don't know about your family, but as we've grown older, instead of getting closer, we've drifted apart. Now, maybe it has as much to do with our physical location as it does our ideologies and personalities. Each of us lives in a different state. And when we do gather, things are civil, but rarely are they warm and fuzzy. There's some walking on eggshells and changing of subjects, but I think that's normal these days. When we're all together, I do spend a lot of time trying to figure out how it was when we were younger. Were we all so immutable then? And if not, when did it change? What caused the change? Like every family out there, we've got our quirks. We've had decades of pressures from life in all its forms. Jobs changing, financial pressures, kids growing up and moving through their stages of life. Then you add social and political ideologies, all of that compressing over the last decade. Is there a family out there that doesn't have some sort of dysfunction happening? Personally, I've never encountered that family with the perfect parents who never argued and the brothers and sisters who've never fought. My parents, they divorced when I was 10, My older brothers and sisters were already out of the house or close to it. What I do remember was something pretty close to a constant state of chaos, stress, and arguments about money. As we're driving across the country, and I was making notes about upcoming episodes and deciding on guests, the family get-together kept creeping in. As the mileage gap closed, I noticed my stress levels rising. I stopped being able to sleep constant headaches and lack of focus. I had a physical reaction and it's still happening as I work on this episode a few days away from the party. It's impacted further because I'm working in the only quiet space I can find, my mother's dark, damp basement. Now you may be asking, why the hell do I need to hear about Chris's dysfunctional family? Well, because it's not really about me. I've been having this conversation with several people for the last couple of years who are experiencing the same situation in their families or friend circle. Things have changed, and a lot of people are now estranged from a family member or a close friend, they have strained relations, or they're close to cutting off relations with someone altogether. It got me thinking, what gives? How do people who grew up in the same environment with the same parents turn out so differently? Now, I understand that each of us is a unique individual. We process things differently based on our upbringing and how we perceive the events around us. If you look at the clinical psychological breakdown of dysfunctional families, you get pretty specific categories, five of them to be exact. You got number one, the substance abuse family, pretty self-explanatory. Number two is the conflict-driven family. Again, pretty straightforward. These families are filled with heated arguments, hurtful exchanges, and usually long-running feuds. Number three, you got the violent family. Physical violence, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. We didn't have to deal with that. Number four, the authoritarian family is the my way or highway family. Number five is the emotionally detached family. At the same time, and aside from those categories, we've got the social, political, and cultural triggers that have come up and are making things worse. In her new book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided, Co-author Sarah Stewart-Holland says her studies have found that a lot of people are still really hurt and suffering from some of the fallout in their relationships over COVID. And as they start to come back together, that pain is right there on the surface from the last argument or heated exchange. You See, it's a lot like having coffee with that friend you haven't seen in a couple of years. Once you sit down across the table, you pick up exactly where you left off and it doesn't feel like a day has passed since the last time you saw each other. Well, it's the same with the negative stuff. And in episode seven, you might remember Rise and Shine, I talked about how our brains are wired to attach to negative events. So, if the last time you saw that sibling, you had a fight or an argument, it'll be the first thing that comes to mind when you see him again. If you go back in time and move forward through historically polarizing events, we can attach the recent fallout to a series of events that basically starts with Trump's election in 2016, then the pandemic in 2020 the events of January 6th, and the Supreme Court decision reversing Roe versus Wade. If that's not enough to spur division, you toss in the differing opinions on gun violence, inflation, global warming, and immigration, and it becomes the perfect storm of division. At this point, it's as if we're no longer speaking to or about people. Rather, we're talking at characters, archetypes, or an ideology, and everything feels really personal. But why? Why, after all of these decades, are we all of a sudden unable to handle such divisions without coming to blows or severing relationships? Well, author and professor of psychology, Daryl van Tongeren, suggests in his new book, Humble, Free Yourself from the Traps of a Narcissistic World, that our cultural fascination with a narcissistic self-aggrandizement is a big factor. So let's go back to 2002, the term selfie comes to life, and then... Over the past 20 years, the focus that's been put on the idea of self has become unhealthy. The way it's evolved may be doing much more harm than good. We've got endless variations on the concept of self. Self Self-awareness, self-esteem, self-control, self-compassion, and on and on. Pop culture is infatuated with the sense of self. So how does this contribute to the divided family relationships? Well, von Tongeren points to three main factors. Number one, the seeking of self-worth or validation from outside sources. Social media, social groups, whichever it is, we're looking for our approval from everyone but ourselves, and it's causing us a great deal of stress. Number two, the constant narrowing of the scope of attitudes, opinions, and beliefs that we're exposed to. Nowadays, we pick the social networks we want to interact with. We pick the news organization that fits our ideologies. And because of that, we're no longer exposed to different opinions or ideas. It's straight programming with little regard for compare and contrast. And number three, the strong desire for an overly positive self-regard. We view ourselves, whether privately or publicly, as better than average, smarter than the next guy or girl, and more often right than wrong. So basically, our approach to the world has now become predicated on protecting our sense of self and our viewpoints. The inclination is to first defend our position and beliefs, rather than remain open to and learn from the evidence that might stand in opposition to those beliefs. To quote Van Tongeren again, endorsements from our tribe that looks like us, believes like us, and talks like us, leave us feeling puffed up externally, yet internally hollow. We're sad and lonely, and hollow, because none of those things actually meet any of the core needs as humans, end quote. So how do we reverse the trend? Well, Van Tongeren suggests that a quiet restraint is the way to deal with those situations. Humility. And not just humility, but cultural humility. And what does that mean? Well, it's simple. It's the point at which we realize that our cultural perspective is not superior. And by doing that, we learn to view the multitude of diverse approaches as a strength. Throughout history, everyone from Socrates to Albert Einstein have written on the importance of humility. Socrates says, pride divides the men, humility joins them. The late great Mary Oliver wrote, humility is the prize of the leaf world. Vainglory is the bane of us, the humans. So here we are. Our progressive society, with the words of a 5th century Greek philosopher ringing in our ears and we're still unable to figure it out. Unable or unwilling, as I see it, having repeated contentious discussions under the guise of hearing one another's viewpoint is counterproductive when neither side has any desire or a conscious ability to alter their position. Oftentimes, we're just thinking about our response to the other person's talking points while they're talking, without listening to or even considering what they're saying. I have yet to hear someone say, Wow, what a clearly stated and well-supported argument you've made. You've changed my mind. It seems like a war of attrition. And I'll admit it, I'm guilty of all three of Van Tongeren's points myself. The last seven years have caused me to reach personal low points with patience, frustration, and even name-calling. I've labeled people and cut off relations with folks I never thought I would. I have to consciously remind myself that I'm speaking to a person and not a stereotype, no matter how much that person may align with that stereotype. This road trip and gathering with my family has me hyper-focused on all of this division and strain and examining my own relationships within my family. I've diminished certain relationships with a few of my family members. And I'm not proud to admit that, but in spending way too much time analyzing the reasons, I've concluded that I've done so not because of politics or because I don't respect the fact we disagree. I've done it because the act of disagreeing became so toxic. And if we disagree so vehemently, maybe our values are just misaligned. And if we don't align on defining issues that are the basis for a civilized and healthy community, then what do we have to talk about? Should we continue just because we feel some need to prove a point? Am I wrong to say it, to actually say it, just because we're family doesn't mean we have to like each other? Maybe walking away is sometimes the best option. Leave that person where they are and stop arguing, stop fighting for the sake of both of you. But here's the danger. By taking that approach, we fall into that self-insulated zone that Van Tongeren points to. It's a conundrum, and I'm conflicted. Because the easy road is to withdraw and interact only with those that you align with. Those who make you feel love and support. Maybe it's the basement. Maybe it's the cold and damp Philly weather that's affecting me. But either way, I can't find any answers. And by the time this episode airs, my family gathering will be in the rear view. Literally. Like right now, we're probably somewhere just beyond Amarillo. And it's the perfect time to address why it is we chose to drive the 6,500 miles. Why not fly? It's quicker, easier, cheaper. Well, in our case, the number of stops and the location of those stops made it way more expensive. Factor in the cost of renting cars, airport aggravation, and general grossness, and it's a wash. Here's the other reason. And for me, the main one. Driving gave us a few days to process what was coming, and then it allows us to decompress afterwards. It gives me and Mel a chance to talk about things outside our daily routine, important things that may otherwise fall through the cracks of, quote, normal life, losing your younger sister, relationships that have slipped, our own relationship that may have been neglected in the midst of all the other stuff. I'll be honest with you. The entire time I've been driving, I've been internally processing grading myself on how i've handled these past 3 weeks. Did i overreact? Did i handle the situation like a rational adult? Did i get triggered and revert back to old habits, childlike emotions? Love to tell you i gave myself an A+. Plus. I'd be lying. And i'd slot into that number 3 spot on Van Tongeren's list of factors that are to blame for the problem in the first place, an overly positive self-regard, better than average. As for the last three weeks, I give myself a C, average. But I guess that's what practice is all about. All right, season two, we are in it. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, share it. If you want to get on the email list or find out how to support the show, head over to themindunset.com. It's all there, and we do not grow without your help. Next week, my guest is Jimmy Halliburton. Jimmy is a sitting council member and the executive director of the Boise Bicycle Project. The organization is nationally known for its programs that serve incoming refugees, incarcerated individuals, and families experiencing homelessness. Jimmy is super kind and so concise with his ideas on building and modifying city infrastructures to better accommodate bicycles as solutions to the traffic congestion and rising health issues. We talked about all of the benefits commuting and traveling by bicycles add to our communities.
1: I think the other thing too is it's just, it's kind of what you're prioritizing, right? And so if you're prioritizing the urgent over the important, um, you know, you're going to get cities that we see like in America, where they prioritize driving cars um, versus the more important aspects of, you know, really investing in the positive benefits that a bicycle can create against the negative effects that, you know, riding in a in a car can take. But if you looked at some of the Dutch cycling, if you looked at other areas around the world, like Bogota, Colombia, all of a sudden you start seeing that the businesses are doing better, the people are happier. So it takes that sort of massive change um, and risk to be willing to take that you know, political fallout that maybe is going to be there to take a lane of a road away to add a bike lane or to close streets so that they're open to the public. Um, but time after time, Paris, all sorts of other places, New York City, you see that when they do it, it always has a positive benefit, but it's a pretty big risk to, to take that step.
0: It's super interesting conversation. You won't want to miss it. Okay. It's raining and cold and I'm freezing my ass off up here in the Northeast. It's time to hit the road. But I'll be back next week, and I hope you will too. So until then, be nice to good stuff.